now imagine the Lightning Network being very similar to the energy system itself and how it moves money, and where every physical node now has its own node in the Lightning Network. And when energy moves in one direction, money moves in the other. Basically, what we're creating is a system where money can move as fast as energy. Hello from sunny Los Angeles. How are you all? Just want to say a massive thanks, a big shout out to the SWAN team for the amazing Pacific Bitcoin conference. Had a great time, some great talks, great to catch up with some Bitcoiners. Also, it's been a really weird fucking week. To anyone who is suffering under what's happened with FTX, look, we send out our kind of sympathies for you. It's been a really shit week. I'm not sure how this is going to play out, um, but listen, stay strong with Bitcoiners. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got Austin Mitchell, the co-founder and CEO of Sonota on. Now, just before I came out to LA, Jeff Booth got in touch and recommended I talk to Austin as Sonota are looking to use the Lightning Network to settle transactions in the energy industry. And being a recommendation from Jeff Booth is obviously somebody I'm going to talk to. The idea seems super interesting, and Danny was very keen that we make this show. So we met up with uh, Austin at the conference, and then we went back and recorded after a whole day where I was actually on stage. I was a bit tired. We only managed about an hour, but it was something that was worth getting into. And I think we'll probably get Austin back on the show in the future to get in a bit more detail with this. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Oh, you're doing a clap. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Do you know what that's for? No, I don't know. All right. So we, it's not just like a, a friendly... I pumped up. A friendly kind of... <laughs> Cheery way. Work, yeah. <laughs> a little friendly Bedford welcome. We clap and you clap for that. No. Uh, it's, uh, it's for the timing. So when, oh. the, when the, they take all the video and the audio, yeah. they use the clap to get all the sync. For so the, it's like the thing when they used to, directors used to, you know, yeah. drop the thing. Okay. It's to get the sound sync. That's fair enough. But now I think we need to start every show with a clap. We do. <laughs> but if they might not clap in return. <laughs> and we're drinking some of Ben's uh, lovely red wine. It's delicious. I wasn't going to drink, but you insisted. So cheers. cheers. So Ben is a Bitcoiner and he, I think he's just, he's a, uh, he's a wine maker. This is Peony Lane. We bought six bottles for him from him about two months ago. And then they arrived in Miami as we were leaving. So Well, first they arrived at the wrong house. Oh, yeah, they went to the wrong house. <laughs> that <laughs> was our fault, though. That was our fault. And then, uh, and then we went moved to another. That was a whole thing as well. There's a whole scam with Airbnb in Miami. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> the, the wine went to the wrong house. Jeremy took it to Philly, brought it back, and here we are drinking Ben's wine. Well, it's, it has a good story then, and it's delicious. Mm. That's a nice, I like a red wine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, welcome Austin. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, we, uh, for context, we've just been to Pacific Bitcoin day one. Mm-hmm. I think they did a great job. Fantastic job. Great conference. And uh, we wanted to fit, well, Danny wanted to fit in talking to you so much. We've come back and we're, we're going to go. So listen, um, don't always do this, but sometimes it's good to give uh, a background for the people listening. If they don't know you, Austin, tell them who you are, where you're from, and all this energy shit we're going to talk about. That sounds good. Yeah, thanks for you know the chance to talk about the background because I think it, it really kind of shapes sort of my own Bitcoin story and and why I think that Bitcoin and Lightning Network can really revolutionize the energy industry. Um, so I have been in energy really from kind of the day one. I was an engineering student doing research uh, on energy efficiency and you know sort of 
for me, that's what kind of created the attachment where I started to really learn about how energy affects people's lives. What do you mean you were studying energy efficiency? Like, oh yeah. So what was really neat was actually you're taking energy use, um, you know, across a cross section of of a community, how much natural gas people used, how much electricity they used, and you're running models on that data to try to figure out, you know, where there were opportunities for people to save money by saving energy. And once you identify those opportunities, you'd go into the homes and, and meet with people to then say, hey, you know, it's, it has to do with your furnace is really out of date. Here are some programs to help, you know, you get a new furnace. So things like that. So it was really sort of on the ground in the community kind of research. And, and so for me, that's when engineering or energy sort of came out of the engineering textbook and now became something real, something very tangible. Because um, obviously you can't touch electrons or you don't want to touch electrons. But, you know, now I sort of understood energy in, in a new way. And, and that for me was what catapulted me into grad school where I spent, you know, really five years studying natural gas development, kind of soup to nuts, everything related to hydraulic fracturing or shale and, and understanding both environmental policy as well as the economics of it. And, and through the whole process, really just getting a better sense of the natural gas industry itself. Okay, let's go a bit broad and then we'll come mm-hmm. in because I want to ask some questions about fracking. Yeah. Uh, it's something that's like a political hot potato in the UK. I know it isn't, uh, there's kind of like mixed feelings on fracking here. Um, I've just been listening, there's an interview at the moment that Joe Rogan's done uh, with Bjorn, what's his name? Bjorn something or other, where they're talking about fracking with that and they're talking about and discussing kind of like the net impact of fracking in that it may reduce the, the cost of uh uh, being able to produce uh, natural gas and natural gas itself uh, has less an environmental impact on coal, but then they talk about the environmental damage of the fracking process. So I've got, I've got questions about that. But generally speaking, you're now a Bitcoiner. Mm-hmm. There are so many discussions around energy. I mean, God, two years ago, we barely talked about energy. Yeah. Now it could be like, what, 20% of the shows we make? It's, More? it's a lot. I think the first time we probably came up was with Troy. I don't think before that we'd really done much on energy at all. No, not to this level. And now we've done so many shows on energy, how the energy sector works, we've discussed nuclear, OTEC. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's like some pretty hardcore debates. There are people who think climate change is like natural, climate change is caused by... Um, humans, it's uh, something we don't have to worry about, it's something we should worry about. Like, there are so many discussions and debates around it. Um, as you as a Bitcoiner coming in, what are you thinking about with regards to energy? What are the main things that are on your mind? Hmm. So I think I'll break it into two things. I think number one is uncertainty. Um, I think that you know anybody who sort of sits here in this moment in time and thinks that they can predict the future is forgetting how throughout time energy has always been up and down, left and right. There is a ton of uncertainty to think about. So whether we're talking about, you know, what is going to the future state of the climate, or we're talking about what are energy markets and resources going to do in the future, there's just a lot we don't know. And and so I always just try to caution people to stay open-minded around what the future can look like. Think about the actions today that'll help, you know, set us on a good direction, but don't be so dogmatic that, thinking that you know the answers today. So I think that's thing number one. And then my the other sort of side of that is then really just a belief in free markets. And, and when I say free markets, it doesn't mean sort of unconstrained free markets. It means markets that are transparent, markets that provide accurate price signals and represent sort of the true cost of energy. And so in order to make that future, I think, the best and to sort of you know, deal with some of those uncertainties, I feel comfortable when, when people really lean into 
what can the free market do to solve some of the problems? And so when I think about energy, those are kind of my two themes is keep open-minded, you know, strive for free markets because they're going to find the answer. And what parts of the market aren't free right now? Um, again, I've heard criticism of, say, the renewable sector, where people mm -hmm. say, well, the renewable sector has only been successful and grown because of massive subsidies that have come from the state. But then I've also been aware that there are massive subsidies for um, the oil and gas industry as well. So what parts of the, uh, what parts of the market are actually like free, like where is the real free market? Oh, geez. Um, well, I think, I think Bitcoin mining, that's one of the things that actually really attracted to me was, is, is they were sort of creating their own market, you know, by actually going, it, my entire career had been, what you're, what you're trying to do is basically bring energy to people, bring energy to businesses. And I saw Bitcoin miners were moving to the source of energy. So they were sort of creating their own market off grid. And, and so I think that's a perfect example of, here is a source of, of energy demand that is looking for a price signal. They're looking to, to really identify the true cost of that energy. And, and in doing so, they're finding the cheapest energy. So I think that's a great example. Right, but, but that is still within a current energy market and energy mix mm -hmm. that's being created. Like when you look at the energy, the broader energy market itself, mm -hmm. You know, and especially something I have to think about a lot being in the UK at the moment, we have very, very high energy prices. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's unbelievable what's happening. Like businesses are closing down, people cannot heat their homes. So when I'm asking you with regards to the market, you say that part of the market is a free yeah. market, but like how do you get a true free market for energy? Mm. And can you have a true free market for energy? And if you did, how would the market change? Got it. Yeah, so what I would say, when you think about the free market, I think... In energy, what is important for folks to realize, and, and again, I'll go back to Bitcoin miners without diving into that, it's that the cost of energy is going to change both in space, so geographically and in time. And so when you're trying to craft a free market in energy, what that means is you have to get more granular. You have to, you have to as well think about the cost of energy in specific areas and at specific times of the day. And so when you have the ability to realize the cost in, in a more granular way, that's when you can get closer to a free market. But that's only kind of one piece of the puzzle because, you know, one of the things people talk a lot about nuclear. So there's sort of a lot of, I think, enthusiasm for nuclear as here's this baseload power, it's clean, et cetera. But there's huge subsidies that are provided to the nuclear industry that people aren't even really aware of. You know, one of the ones that I like to talk about just because I think it highlights, this is why this picture is always complex is there's something called the Price-Anderson Act in the U.S. And what that means is that any liability for a nuclear accident above a certain amount, which is actually a pretty low amount, the federal government's going to pick up the tab for that. And why that's a huge subsidy is because no private company, so a lot of the utilities in the United States, a lot of the, the power that's delivered to homes and, and gas is going to be by investor-owned utilities. And those investor-owned utilities, they trade on the stock exchange, they wouldn't have a, nobody would want to buy their stock if they had the liability of a nuclear accident on, you know, potential in their balance sheet, because that's basically an existential type event. Um, and you probably can't get insurance. And it. you couldn't get insurance. So yeah. they can insure everything but a nuclear plant. And so that's sort of just one example of sort of a very esoteric, lesser known subsidy, but it's there. But is it, is, is it a subsidy? I mean, I guess it's a subsidy, but it's also an insurance. The government yeah, it's, but the government doesn't charge the companies for that insurance. They just say, "Hey, if if you ever, as long as you follow our rules, if you ever have an accident, we'll we'll take over the liability." Would you say that's something similar to the FDIC? I mean, I think it's it's along those same lines where the government's basically providing a you know here's a top down 
um, thing that basically we're, we're, we're taking on the risk. We're helping manage that. We're taking it off the hands of the industry. Why do they provide that? Is, is, is it purely economic or is it more to do with uh, giving kind of reassurance to the market or speed of response or just, you know, if there was some kind of nuclear accident, you just don't want to wait for the private sector to... Deal with it. What is well, the the any any private company just wouldn't have the balance sheet to to deal with the liabilities that result. So it was sort of it was a recognition that as in order to support the nuclear industry's growth, somebody had to take that liability. Otherwise, there would be no private investment in that. So you can get now private investment in building nuclear plants, um, but you can only get that if they're not on the hook for any accidents. So if there was a true free market, there probably wouldn't be any nuclear power. Yeah, that's exactly right. What would we have? In well, you can think about it in maybe smaller scales. So yeah. one of the really interesting technologies is modular, you know, small modular nuclear yeah, these, reactors. These, um, like, uh, version four, do they call them version four? The, reactors? Yeah, SMRs, I think they call yeah, them. Yeah, SMRs. Um, so, yeah, those things obviously would sort of have naturally sort of limit the potential impacts of, of a nuclear accident. Um, and obviously we're talking about something that's super rare, but what I'm, or super unlikely, I would say, uh, but at the end of the day, it's just one example of the government, you know, has through policy has major effects on markets. And so of course the easy examples are the, you know, the, the incentives provided for, for renewable energy. Um, but then there's also sort of the flip side of the equation. So when you think about, you know, and, and this is the, the complaint that folks who are advocates for renewable energy will have is, well, we're, we're not sort of pricing in the externalities of fossil fuels. And when, so when I say externality, what I'm talking about, carbon, other types of emissions, environmental damage, um, those things maybe aren't being reflected in the price of the energy that's being delivered to the market. And so folks would advocate for, okay, let's, let's have a carbon tax. That's a way, or let's price that carbon. That's a way to correct the market. Um, so you can have issues of, of subsidization or issues of, externalities not being priced in. But those are two sort of two sides, uh, or two different sides of the coin, but they both sort of distort what is the cost of energy that that's, you know, viewed in the market. And you're still never going to have a truly free market whilst you have a state. Because well, the I state's always going to interfere in one way or another. And then even if you did, is it still truly a free market when there is a historical uh, subsidies and, and uh, coverage by given by the government that's actually allowed for you know, certain parts of the energy sector to advance. Yeah, so I don't, I'm certainly not going to, when I say free markets, it's sort of an idealistic yeah. thing. It's more like the pursuit of, um, it's like, as yeah. opposed to it can be achieved. I just, I really think that we should, whenever like we a have journey. a choice, we yeah. should be, our bias should be towards more freedom um, and more, more transparency. Okay, tell me a bit about fracking, obviously, because you know about that. Um, mm -hmm. As I said, when the show I was listening to with Rogan and Bjorn, whatever his name was, they were talking about kind of uh, that natural gas is preferred because it has a less, uh, less a lower impact on the environment than, say, burning coal. Mm -hmm. But there is pollution that comes to, say, the riverways and the waterways that comes out of fracking, and there's you know, certain environmental damage that comes from it. So, like, where... Yeah, what is the like the true story and the true picture of natural gas coming from fracking? Yeah, so I, I think the of any time you're you're extracting a, a natural resource from the earth, there's going to be impacts, and so you can think about just the fact that in a lot of cases, what we're doing is we're laying pipelines to remote areas, we're chopping down trees, we're we're leveling off a part of the earth to then you know drill wells into the ground. One of the most interesting things about fracking, though, has been 
how that footprint has really been minimized. And, and how it's been minimized is that on a single well pad, instead of, it used to be just every one well pad meant one well, and then they would have to then do another one. And so you would, you can look on Google Earth and you can see parts of, of the U.S. where it was sort of that one-to-one relationship. And it's like, you know, it's amazing what it's done to the, to the landscape where you had, have such a disruption to just sort of, you just see well pads everywhere. But with fracking, what they've been able to do is drill horizontal wells. And the most interesting thing is so they can drill 12 wells, sometimes even more from one location, and they go out and they spiderweb thousands of feet into the formation to get the natural gas. So you've taken a footprint and you've shrunk it down you know, by a factor of 15. So those are some of the really interesting things that, you, that have evolved with hydraulic fracturing with horizontal drilling that are truly remarkable feats of technology. I mean, to imagine that a drill bit going 10,000 feet down and then 15,000 feet sideways, it's incredible technology and they're steering it the whole way. I mean, it, it's you know, very precise, it's pretty cool. But how's this natural gas stored? Is it stored as like tiny little bubbles within the rock? It, it is in it is in the like the micro the micro pores of the rock, absolutely. And so the fracking process is injecting a fluid, a hydraulic fracturing fluid, into the rock at high pressure, and then having you know sand or, or something similar, you know, basically hold open those little pore spaces so that way the natural gas can flow out over time. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino. To find out more about BitCasino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. 
Also, today we have Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. All right, so let's move on to, is it pronounced Sonoda? Yeah. Yeah, so Sonoda is the company you founded. That's right. Um, and you come under high recommendation from Jeff Booth. And when Jeff Booth goes in touch and says, <laughs> hey, you need to take a look at something, like I'm all ears. Okay, I Wonderful. love Jeff. So um, tell us about Sonoda. Okay, so so Sonoda basically, we exist to create an energy abundant future. Um, and how we're getting there is actually solving the problems that we've been talking about around around markets. And it's it's basically providing the energy industry the opportunity to decentralize the settlement process. And so when I say settlements, what I'm really talking about is the financial part of every energy transaction. So when you and me consume energy in our home, there's two parts to this transaction. One is I, de- I have energy delivered to me. Mm-hmm. The second part of that transaction is I actually pay for the energy. Now, what is happens today is that the means for paying for energy are really kind of stuck in the days of the 50s and 60s when energy companies used to be vertically integrated. So when people used to walk neighborhoods, read the meters, go back to the office, put the information in, you know, into the billing system, you get the bill, 30 days later, you're paying that bill. That's hardly changed in 50 years. We're still largely doing that. So we're paying for something that we've consumed one month ago, two months ago. So what we exist to do is to really cut all of that out. And so we're creating a programmatic link between the energy system itself and the lightning network. So you can imagine, the the visual I like to paint is if you go into the control room of any utility, what you're going to see is all the physical nodes of the energy system sort of on the big board. You're gonna have the points of energy production, the points of consumption, and all of these sort of nodes, the substations, et cetera, in between, they're all represented there. So now imagine the lightning network being very similar to the energy system itself and how it moves money, um, and where every physical node now has its own node in the lightning network. And, and when energy moves in one direction, money moves in the other. So you're basically, what we're creating is a system where money can move as fast as energy. So no longer do we have to wait on, you know, the bill to come or anything like that. Now we can have really this, this full dynamic system that's perfectly linked together. Right. You're going to have to break that down a bit more. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me as like a real world use case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're in my house now. Say this is not my house, but say this is my house now. I've got a meter up on the wall. I can turn my electricity or my gas on as and when I need it. I can, I can put my cooker on, start cooking some beans for my beans on toast. Or right. I can boil a kettle, or I can have like the TV on. How does this work? Because at the moment, what happens is, like you say, I get a bill. I didn't even, by the way, I didn't even know that's a month or two months later. Mm-hmm. But that works quite well for me. 
Yeah. You know, our bills are fairly, up until recently, been fairly stable, not too volatile. It's changed a bit recently. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, that works. Like, why does that, what part of that needs fixing? Yeah, so what, what's happening is because you're paying for something you've already consumed, you're basically getting a loan every month. Yeah. And there's no such thing as a free loan. Okay. Um, so what's embedded in the cost of your energy bill is all of the financial inefficiency that is associated with the fact that you're not paying in line with your consumption. Actually, do you know what they always all, always do as well? They always overcharge. I always have a credit with my energy company. I don't know if that's a British... It was definitely the same in England. I don't know. I don't think that happens in Australia. Yeah, so, the, so whatever they think you need... If, yeah, Emma's probably the same. <laughs> like, you have, like, this extra credit, and it get, it grows every single month. So by the time, you know, you, you know, at the end of the year when your contract's ending, you want to change, I might have, like, a three, £400 credit with this energy company. I found out one of the reasons they do that, actually, is... Because you got a credit, it's like this, it's, it's a signal to you that, oh, I should stay with them. I'm mm. earning money. Now, really what it is, is they've always just been overcharging you. Um, but that's generally how it works. I've kind like I said, I've been okay with that. Yeah. What, so, what are the inefficiencies? Of? Yeah. So, so the first inefficiency, so cash flow is a thing. So if you're consuming something, that means the company that's provided to you had, a, had to pay the money to bring that to you. But you're not paying them for a few months later. So you have this disconnect, which creates cash flow issues. The other thing, it has to do with the credit exposure side of it. So you individually, you're not a big credit risk, but when you multiply that by everybody that's consuming energy, by big companies that consume energy, now if you're the energy supplier, you're wondering, okay, is Peter going to pay this bill? Or if you're a big manufacturer, are they going to go out of business before they pay their bill? So now you start to sort of stack up, okay, we've got cash issues that we have to manage. They manage those cash issues by actually borrowing money from you know, commercial paper markets by drawing upon the revolving line of credit. So the, it's you start to think about, okay, there's whole departments now that are tasked with managing cash flow. There's departments now managing credit risk. Right. And and so that's the financial inefficiency that exists. The cost of the capital. The means cost of the capital, absolutely. Which gets passed on to the customer. Mm-hmm. Do we know what that, that is about? Yeah, so, so what we think is that we can save about 10% uh, on average. Of, so your bill could be 10% cheaper if you adopt you know, the software that Sonos is using, if you pay for energy instantly. Now, the other things that are important is some, so it's called bad debt, but actually in the US, five to 7% of people don't pay their energy bill. Yeah. And that just continues to stack up over time again, because the energy company doesn't know if you're going to be paying that. I think there's some kind of laws with regards to turning your energy off in the UK as well. Same thing here. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, there's ways to intervene and help resolve those situations quicker when you actually know. But when you're relying on a non-instantaneous way of paying, it delays that information of when you're actually going to know that. Right. So again, it just sort of exacerbates the problem. Right. Um, and then the, th- the, the last thing that I'll mention is that it's also the case that when you pay your energy bill, you're, you're just paying one company. But in my experience, you know, I've worked through the whole value chain of energy. So there may actually be five or 10 companies that had a hand in bringing that energy to your house, but you're only paying one of them. Right. So what do they do? They have to turn in... Pay the next one, who then pays the next one and the next one. You're paying the, like, the, the, well, whoever you buy the energy from. Like, yes. The energy, but okay. But then because they turn they, and pay the other people. Because so. they don't want to have every, they don't want, like, every gas company to lay a set of pipes. They want one share That's exactly of pipes. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so technology wise, in, yeah, the way it works is, is essentially, is it like, I'm basically streaming sats for my energy usage? Yeah. So that's, a, so that's possible. Okay. Yes. 
But what we think is, is actually gonna be the case is that you, it's more important just to give people a choice. So if you want to stream sats, great. If you wanna still pay at the end of 30 days, great. But what we can do is we can just get closer to the cost of providing the energy. Because again, if you are deciding that you wanna wait for 30 days, there is cost associated with that. And so now we can differentiate the you consumers. You can see the two. Yes. All right. So it's a bit like when you're, I think the airlines are kind of were one of the ones who first revolutionized pricing mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, I know if I book weeks in advance, you know, I can you know, probably get a cheaper flight. But if I do fly on the day, or if I want to fly in the morning, it'll be this. If I want to take hang luggage versus, like they give you those options. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to catch a flight these days, if you're, you know, if, if you're like a little bit shrewd, you can go, right, I'm going to book in advance. I'm only going to take hand luggage. I'm going to take the morning. That's right. you, you can plan all this shit. That's exactly right. And so you, what you're basically saying is, here are your options. You can pay at the end of the month and mm -hmm. it will be 300 pound or you can pay as you go and it'll be 250 pounds. That's exactly right. And and the energy company benefits because they're getting the instant money yep. or you're incurring the cost of capital if you choose to defer it. That's exactly right. Okay, is this one of those things where it will be probably discriminatory against, like not by intention, but discriminatory against the poor? No. Okay. No, no. So, you know, in my Twitter bio... You, know, you sure it's not like a... Because we know these things happen. Like, for example, with insurance, poor people tend to have to pay proportionally higher insurance rates because they tend to live in areas of higher crime. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's... There's like a term for it. I can't remember what it is, but yeah. So no, so that that is not the case. Actually, it's it's going to be the opposite way. Um, and and why why that is is because so much about energy costs or price today that we all pay is being socialized. And so when you think about that socialization, what's happening is that there's maybe neighborhoods, maybe zip codes that are more expensive to serve, but everybody's paying the same price. Um, one of the examples, actually, I was just reading the, the Canary Media on the way over, which is an energy publication, and they, they were talking about solar panel deployment and how there's a huge gap between you know, wealthy people with solar panels and low-income people with solar panels. Now, part of that can be just sort of you know, ability, you know, cash on hand, able to sort of pay for those things. But it's also the case that, again, we lack sort of the price signals to say, does it make sense to be sort of filling up wealthy neighborhoods with solar panels versus should they be more distributed mm -hmm. based on the actual needs of the grid? And so there was a study in Chicago recently, um, not recently, five years ago, that sort of looked exactly at that issue where the incentives which were available to everybody were only being taken by people in wealthier neighborhoods. And to the extent that it was actually creating a burden on the entire energy grid, well, the burden, which then gets represented in costs to main, you know, more maintenance, upgrades to the grid, that burden gets spread to everybody. So the lower income people are actually helping to now subsidize more wealthy people having solar panels on their roofs. So huh. there's actually embedded equity issues that are not being resolved or not being, that can be solved with better, better market pricing you know, or better markets. And then you can actually more directly address some of the problems that do exist with energy equity. If you do want to have programs like energy assistance programs, which are really widespread in the US, one of the challenges actually with that, so during the pandemic, lots of energy, additional energy assistance was provided, but a significant chunk of that went unused. Well, why? I mean, this is money available to help people pay for their energy bills. Um, why, is, why are people not taking advantage of that? And the reason why is because of fraud. So 
the government didn't want to give money directly to the utilities because money's fungible and who knows yeah. where that's going to go. Okay, so they didn't give it to the utilities. What they do is they say, okay, if you need energy assistance, you know, get your form of identification, your bill, and then two things that prove you live there, go down to the nearest office and then you'll get the assistance. Well, that's a lot of time and effort. So with the system that we're talking about, where it's sort of provable who, where the money's going, it's going to pay for energy, we can now have a way to efficiently distribute those benefits to the people that need it and be able to say with 100% confidence that that, that benefit's going to pay for energy. So just another example of how you now empower governments, empower energy companies to better serve the people that, that they serve, not sort of take this top-down view where everybody pays the same, everything gets socialized, let's actually get very granular with things now that we can when we decentralize. Our whole thing is the energy system itself is becoming more decentralized. Let's now decentralize the method of payment. And what about, I mean, I understand why you're going to use the Lightning Network for this. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. You can stream sats as you stream energy. Mm -hmm. um, but what about the inherent volatility of uh, the Bitcoin price? How do you, you know, how do you prevent that becoming an issue? Are you, is this similar to like how Jack talks about the Lightning Network? Precisely. Yeah, so you're just using the Lightning Network as a way of moving uh, value fast. Yep. But, you know, but you're not using it in terms of, it's not the payment currency. Yeah, I mean, so they said right. don't give you quick answers, but that really is the yeah, quick answer. I, well, that mean my assumptions. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. Like, if you're in the UK, if you had this great technology, I, there'd probably be like one person in the town mm -hmm. I live in beyond me who would you could explain to nobody else would yet you still got a problem like you've still been able to solve a problem for everyone yeah so it really is it's thinking about you know, using the, light, the power the lightning, yeah, network. the lightning network for us provides sort of an atomic medium of exchange or sort of instant yeah. medium of exchange so you can operate in your local currency on both ends the the payer and the payee can both deal in fiat deal in local currency or deal in bitcoin but the point is is that really bitcoin is the vehicle to move value quickly. And, and so that's really what we're leveraging here. And then on top of that, the Lightning Network is an open network. So that's where we're able to actually write, you know, in that application layer, write software that's, that's creating that direct link. So the whole back office that today sucks time, sucks resources, uh, you know, from the system, we can now eliminate all of that and just focus on when energy moves, money moves. It's that simple. This show is brought to you by Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Next up, we have the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council is putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. This event will be two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. 
Day two is where we will hear from top policy leaders in the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, and CFTC commissioners. So what more could you ask for? Now, I'm not just promoting this. I will be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing a very important person. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. And also, if you come along, come say hello. It'd be good to meet some of you. To find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org. That is TexasBlockchainSummit.org. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Right. Okay. So where are you at with this? Are you at the point where you're deploying this or you're just testing it? Where are you at with this? Yeah, that's a great question. So where we're at today is we're working with a couple of Bitcoin miners okay. to to commercialize the software. So we just raised money and, and that's really where we're at. So what we're what we're doing is going to be pushing sort of the limits of the Lightning Network. And and so that's why we're getting really excited. So we're working with Bitcoin miners who understand the opportunity to really initiate this innovation because this is a huge way to scale the Lightning Network. So Let's start with, with people who know it best uh-huh. because of everything you said with, with Jack, et cetera. The energy companies, they, they don't, they're not looking to have Bitcoin in their balance sheet. So we're able to make sure that they still receive cash um, or USD in our case. Um, and, and really the only case that we're asking them you know, from a sales point is, are you okay getting paid more frequently? So it's, 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 it's an okay sort of pitch to them. And, and that's really, that's where we're beginning. And, and what we're going to do is really just kind of scale within the Lightning Network to kind of build out Okay, we're, now we're doing $1,000 a day. Now let's do 10000 Let's do twenty. Those are the things that we need to do and do it at a very high reliability because Lightning Network reliability is not 99.99 like a Visa or MasterCard. So we're, we're having to sort of put the effort in to make sure we can get there because we're not paying for podcasts. We're paying for energy. It's a critical thing. It has to be 100% reliable. Right, okay. In, in what way are you testing the limits of the Lightning Network in terms of like volume of transactions? Yeah, so it's, it's transaction volume. And it's also just ensuring that it, 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 the reliability side of it. Yeah, so right. what we're, what we're try, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's novel infrastructure that we're building on the Lightning Network. And, and I think that's really kind of the biggest thing that we want to show can scale. 
So liquidity is, of course, one of those challenges on the Lightning Network and making sure that you actually can move the payments. And how do you manage all of the liquidity without you know, creating a bunch of cost? So it, it's about sort of doing everything, doing it quickly, and, and not sort of losing your shirt in the process. Okay, so if you're, if you're using the Lightning Network really as a, a way of, it's kind of like an accounting system that runs alongside the distribution of energy, mm-hmm. and it's just a way of moving value. But does that not mean you have to hold a certain amount of Bitcoin yourselves to be able to move those Satoshis around? And are you taking on board any volatility risk? Yeah. So how are you hedging your risk? Yeah. So the short, the short answer is yes. You know what we're doing is we're 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 setting things up so that we're not sort of owning that risk ourselves. But I think that that's going to be an important question and challenge with anybody that's doing something like what we're doing on the Light Network is how are now how are we as as the enablers of these transactions going to be making sure that we're not now putting ourselves in a position or putting our customers in a position where they're exposed to the price risk. The good thing is, is the transaction that we're talking about today happens in under 10 seconds. So there's really not currency risk in that. Now, but as we scale and we're maintaining liquidity, it's going to be a question for us of what's the most efficient way to do that while also managing the price exposure. Oh, yeah, but hold on a second. So if you're going to be taking payments from the miner and you're going to be sending... I assume with a cut, some of those payments across to the energy provider, and you're saying, do you mind getting paid instantly? What are they actually getting transferred? Like you're not going to be you're streaming Sats because you can do instant Sats, mm-hmm. but the energy company at the other end, if they only want dollars, how does that become dollars for them? Are you, hmm. are you how are you settling? Are you settling on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a minute by minute basis? Yeah, so we're integrated with a third party on on the off ramp side. Okay, so you know the actual exchange is being done by a third party today. Right. You know, because effectively we're actually not serving as a as an intermediary in the transaction. It, it is purely as Lightning should be. It's it's peer to peer. Our software really exists as just decentralized software that allows both parties to transact between each other. So it's, it's, it's to automate all of the complexity. So okay. we're, not, we're not actually the ones who are pressing go and then you know, moving, moving the funds over. We're just saying, here's software that has all the logic embedded in it. It will, it will automatically read the meter and then move the money. And then of course, yeah, a third party, which is you know, obviously custodial, does that, that, that conversion at yeah. the very end, just like Jack would say. Yeah. Um, so we're not we're not involved in that. We're just using somebody's existing technology. Is it not like an uh, accounting nightmare for the energy company, the energy provider? Because instead of getting like one payment every thirty days, they're getting a thousand throughout the month or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's a great question. So one of the fun things that we we talk about with energy companies is reconciliation. So yeah. today reconciliation is actually you know it's task in and of itself because you you are getting multiple you know you have multiple sources of money coming in and. What ultimately is happening is that, you know, there's, you know, folks whose, whose job title is, okay, I need, not, well, in the accounting department, focused on, you know, matching up, you know, inbound, outbound, ARAP, all of that can get pretty complex. But when you have the Lightning Network and you're settling things instantly, the actual notion of reconciliation goes away. Right. Because uh, it was money out, money, in, or, you know, energy out, money in, and it all happens in 10 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So... We, it's, it's actually kind of fun having these conversations with energy companies, with their controllers, et cetera, saying, hey, this is, it's going to change how you sort of perceive things. So multiple payments is not going to be a, a task because A, it's all fully automated. B, you don't actually have to reconcile anymore. Huh. 
So what is the what is the response so far from energy companies been? And are you purposely targeting one, say, in Texas who are already aware of the Bitcoin mining thing and or are you going to companies who've got no idea and they think you're fucking crazy? <laughs> so I, the response from energy company has been, okay, yeah, this is solving a big problem, but not loving Bitcoin. Okay. okay. And so okay. that's where we're actually, it's really funny. So we, we just talked with, a, um, had a meeting with one of the largest energy marketing companies. Um, marketing in terms of like, marketing could mean a couple of things in the space, but truly like marketing and promotional, you know, type of things. And they said, hey, everything that you're doing is fantastic. Yeah. You know, the value proposition is, is very clear. Can you do it without saying Bitcoin? And, and so, so the, I mean, the short answer is yes. I love that though, without saying it, it's like, that's just a bad word. Just don't say it. We yeah, can do like, this. You don't, you don't need that to sell it. Yeah, you don't And so that. I'm like, okay, I, under, I get where they're coming from because it's like, you're solving the problems. Just focus on solving the problems. You could just say blockchain. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> maybe, that would, maybe that would warm them up. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> but it works, doesn't it? I suddenly use changing from Bitcoin to blockchain. They're like, oh yeah, blockchain. You'll be inundated with investments then. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun because I mean, I'm such a passionate person in Bitcoin. So I love, I love talking about it and how Bitcoin like networks solve these problems. Yeah. But so it's interesting when people who know how to communicate in the energy industry, um, they're just like, we don't need to talk about Bitcoin in order to sell this. <laughs> and and so I'm, I'm catching up. So with the tests that you've got coming up, what is it you're looking for? What are like the knowns you're looking for? And what like what is like the field of unknowns that you're thinking about? Like the 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 unintended consequences of this. Oh geez, I, I think it's it's really just proving out how we're actually going to be managing all of the flows and, and ensuring that you know things like you talk about. Are you taking on price risk? Yeah, I think it's just really doing that and scaling up. It's it's the reliability and it's the volume of the payment. Um, but other than that, no, it feels all very known. Um, so we, we feel very good about where we are. But um, do you think this will change any part of like energy production? Oh, I think that's why we get really excited about this right. is because when you, when you can now, so what's key about this whole thing is it's, it's the payment side is one aspect, but what we're doing is we're decentralizing the whole processing side. So no longer do, do energy companies need to centralize everybody's meter data onto one database. Now it's all happening in a decentralized way. So you have your own container of data. I have my own container of data. We own, we each own our respective data. And, and so people get very excited about that because that is what will allow us, you and me to have different prices because we're not sort of forcing the same processing, we're not making changes to one process, centralized system that then we have to push to everybody. Now we can start to be our own unique operators and we can get very granular in the pricing. So when you think about the production, now we can give clear signals to solar plants now we can, you know, help nuclear plants get, you know, the true value of what they're providing every day. So it's, it's everybody in the, in the value chain is now going to be much closer to the value that they provide. So, so how big could this be? Oh, it's huge. It's the, whole, it's the whole energy economy is going to move on to lightning. And that's what we're really excited about. So when I say the energy economy, huh? I'm talking about, it starts with the four and a half trillion dollars every year that's spent on energy. Huh? Yeah. Hold, hold on. The whole energy... Sector will move on to lightning. Yeah, so that picture I painted of, hey, every node in the physical system will now have its own lightning network node. And our software just makes it so that way they can, those lightning nodes now can talk energy. That's really it. And so they now just are in constant communication with each other, moving funds instantly between each other. So it is that circular economy now happening for the energy industry. 
And what also gets me excited, Peter, is that it goes beyond that because then you think of all of the other energy-related products and services. So, uh, you know, one of the common things in the States is, okay, well, you can also buy insurance tied to your energy. Okay, well, throw that on there too. Or maybe if you're somebody who, it, you know, your job was you, you put the solar panels up, so you are the installer. Now you maybe can have a choice in the future of, do I want to make a small, small amount off of the future revenue of that solar farm, or do I want that upfront payment? So now you can start to think of different means of compensating people who have a role in providing the energy in that value chain. Huh. I, th- I think the, the, a, a really interesting thing that we've not got into at all yet is the, the stuff you're doing in like terms of the mini grids and emerging mm, yeah. markets. I, I'd really like you to get into this that. This is what Danny was telling me about earlier. Yeah, yeah. so this is super interesting. And, and I, have to give, I have to give credit here to, to two people. So one is Kevin Hallinan, who is professor at the University of Dayton. And the other is um, Dan Snitcher, who is, who is my friend. Who's Snitcher? His, <laughs> I say his, mm, Schnitzer, Schnitzer, Schnitzer. Um, he's an awesome guy. So a really good, a dear friend of mine from grad school. And he's the CEO of a company called Spark Meter. Um, Spark Meter is, is on the ground in 26 countries today with hardware and software and mini grids. And they do a bunch of other things too, but that's, that's where they really kind of got their start. And so in conversations with both of them, one of the most interesting things that, that I learned was mini grids during the first few years. So when I say mini grid, I'm talking about yeah. we're, we're in remote Africa or any emerging market and we're, you know, you're basically Here's now a solar panel providing power to a community. But of course, right when those panels get installed, the community doesn't have a lot of organic load that you know, they're ready to plug in. You know, there was no electricity before, so it's not like everybody's lining up to now. Using that Nutribullet. And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what, what do you do? I mean, so one, one thing people won't, don't, don't fully appreciate is that in, in you know, parts of Africa or throughout most of the continent, the average price of electricity is 30 to 50 cents a kilowatt hour. What? Yeah, so way beyond, way above what we're all paying. Yeah. So talk about energy equity. There's, there's an issue right there, and and there's still a billion people without access to electricity. So don't even get me started on on sort of the shame in that. Um, but here here's a situation where there's now access being provided, but the access is hampered by the fact that the electricity is expensive. Now it's still a benefit because before having no electricity, you you prefer to have some because you can charge your phone, etc. You can have light at at night. So the opportunity here is that in those first three, five, six years, there's a lot of excess electricity. And so the idea that we had, and, and Dan and Kevin were, were instrumental in this, is, well, let's, let's send some Bitcoin miners over to Africa. So we have a couple of partners on the ground, and they're using you know, the excess electricity that, that exists right at the, these very first few years to mine Bitcoin. Huh. Now, what, what's happening in that equation is it's not taking anything away from the community. So it's not costing them anything. What it is, is it's providing incremental revenue to the mini grid operator without any, any additional cost to them. So here we're mining Bitcoin in you know, Cameroon and Nigeria. The mini grid operator now is bringing down, they're making additional revenue. So they're able to lower the cost to the rest of the community. And what's neat though, is because we're using the Lightning Network, we have an opportunity to pay for that electricity as I sit you know, it, here in the United States. So instant payments, paying for mining happening halfway across the world. And, and so, you know, the rewards, of course, flow back this way. But that's yeah. like, you can think of like, how can this, so why we're doing this is not because, so at Sonoda, we're not Bitcoin miners. We're doing this to demonstrate what's possible. 
when we open up the energy economy globally and we open up energy markets globally. Because again, going back to my belief in markets, yeah. they're not global today because you you don't transact energy across borders because of all the cross-border fees. Well, now that can go away. The really cool thing about that to me is that it's, it's not only just not sort of taking away from the local people that are going to use that energy, it's actually making it cheaper for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the, those grid operators could presumably charge the Bitcoin miners slightly more and almost give away free energy to those people that are local. Yeah, it, it completely changes the economics. And one of the really neat things is, you know, our modeling shows that the actual optimal setup is putting more solar more more energy infrastructure on the ground. So you can take sort of the, the view today, which is let's build the mini grid for the first five years. We yeah. can always expand it later. Well, now it's like, no, let's build for 10 years. And, and so let's actually put more investment in. And it doesn't even just start with, it's not just about Bitcoin mining, it's about productive uses of energy and energy infrastructure. <laughs> so we're using it as Bitcoin mining as an example, but really it's now somebody in Europe or United States can make a direct investment in energy infrastructure and then have the assurance that they're going to get paid because it's all coming from the Lightning Network. So you're just opening this up to where now you're not constrained in where you invest in energy infrastructure. So what what are the downsides here? What are the bits you don't know about? What are the risks? Like what? Like this just seems too good to be true. Well, it it's, is. It's perfect, Pete. Shut the fuck up. It's <laughs> perfect, Pete. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Give us your money. We're off we go. <laughs> no. No, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think the way that we're thinking about, there's, of course, going to be a lot of things that we're going to have to learn. There's going to be a lot of new things. But that's why we're building in a very open way. Yeah. You know, because we want people to help us see what we don't see. We want people to, we want the Bitcoin community at large to help contribute to what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, sure, there's going to be downsides. But as a community, we can help solve this. We don't think Sonoda is going to be the one to bring the whole energy economy onto Light Network. Like, we don't have some secret sauce. We have... 125 years of energy experience that we're leveraging. Yeah. And we've got some great talent on the lightning development side, but it's going to take a whole community to do this. And, and so I think whatever the challenges are that we're going to face, we know we have the whole community behind us. And that's what, that's, what's really cool. All right. And if people want to find out more, where did they go? Okay. So Sonoda.io, S-Y-N-O-T-A.io. Right. And how do we see it in action? Is there like any kind of demo we can see? Yeah. So we're going to be, the stuff that we're doing in Africa, we're going to be talking about more towards the end of the year. So we'll have, we'll have things there that we can spend. And then early into next year is when we're going to really be kind of ramp up our, our commercialization in terms of bringing more people into the, into the fold, making the product available in a, in a more commercial way. So I think it's through that process that people will get to see it. Obviously I'm an open book. Anybody can come talk to me whenever about this. But I think I just get really excited about we're going to have the use cases on full display very soon. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, I'm glad we did this. I know it's like a rush at the we're end of rushed. the conference. Yeah, we got it in. Uh, but I'm glad we did it. And I want to find out more about it. So, look, stay in touch. Uh, we'll put some stuff in the show notes. And, yeah, good luck with it. Sounds amazing. Thank you very much, Peter. All right. What would you make of that? Do you enjoy that? If you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. You can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And as I said in the intro, I'm really sorry if anyone's suffering with everything that's happened with the FTX this week. Honestly, it's what a shit show, an absolute shame. And it's really something that's going to put us back for a while. Me and Danny are trying to kind of get into this and think about how we're going to cover this. We've got Lynn in later, probably going to ask her 
a bunch of questions, see what she thinks happened. Anyway, this was a great show. Big thanks to Austin for coming on. The ideas that he has around the whole energy industry moving over to the Lightning Network is just incredible. So I'm trying to digest the consequences of this. It's kind of crazy some of the innovations with Bitcoin that are coming in at the moment. But yes, we're going to meet up with Austin again. We're going to cover this again in the future. Hopefully not after a long day at a conference when I'm not so tired. Anyway, enjoying myself out here in LA. I'm going to be heading to Vegas in a few days. Going to be heading out to Austin for the Texas Blockchain Summit. Hopefully we'll meet up with some of you. Anyway, you've got any questions, as I said, reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible.